Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome listeners to another episode of the Pre-Paces podcast. I'm Dr. Sam Williams and today we're taking a deep dive into palpitations with cardiology reg Alex Carpenter. Now this is one of those clinical consultations you might think would be relatively straightforward which means it can also be a potential banana skin if you fail to get the basics right and Alex and I talk through the typical presentation of these cases, how you can distinguish the various causes in your history and how you can strategize your investigations of these patients and there's more love to be shared on the buy me a coffee page this week the thank yous go to Alison, who got her first time pass working in a busy dgh with minimal paces teaching congratulations to sophia liam and to herms who all passed first time and to hayne who got it at their second attempt massive thanks as well to reese an emergency medicine trainee and to sophie both of whom recently passed first time i'm so thrilled every time i hear of the podcast helping people pass and i'm so grateful for anyone who donates in supporting the podcast so a sincere thank you to you all but right now let's get into this episode with dr alex carpenter Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sam Williams, and today we are returning to the motherland, the warm motherland of cardiology. And joining us is another fantastic expert guest. He is a senior cardiology trainee in electrophysiology at the Bristol Heart Institute, and I think it is fair to call him senior. He puts the G in ECG. It's the coolest cardiologist we know. It's Dr. Alex Carpenter. So Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Sam, and I appreciate the uh, the dad jokes. <laughs> Many more to come, I can assure you. So this episode is going to be focusing on something which we see day in, day out as uh, cardiology trainees and something you must have seen many times in your years, particularly as a subspecial, uh, subspecialist in EP, uh, Alex, and it's, and it's palpitations. So if I could just start off with a, a quite a broad open question is how often do you see these types of patients and how, how common are they in your day-to-day practice? Well, yes, incredibly common. I mean, most people sort of when they hear palpitations, they sort of, you know, take a deep sigh and get ready to, you know, 
fall asleep. But of course, palpitations, while they're incredibly common and often benign, can belie serious underlying disease in a small number of cases. And that's why this is such an important uh, topic to include in something like PACES, because you're really going to have to try and focus your history taking to tease out those things which are less benign from those things which are. And that's a lot of what we spend our time doing as cardiologists is trying to reassure people who need reassurance, but also investigating those who need their symptoms looking into. So without further ado, let's get into palpitations. So Alex, if we could just start off, what do we mean and what might our patients mean when they talk about having palpitations? Well, palpitations can refer to a number of things, but essentially it's, a, it's an awareness of somebody's heartbeat, not necessarily rapid. Often people will perceive their heartbeat more if it's irregular. I think NICE refer to uh, this abnormally perceived heartbeat may include irregularity, a feeling of the heart racing or pounding. And often people can be referring to something that's only seconds long. And something that I often hear is a feeling of a missed or an extra beat. And that could be a, a single ectopic. The other end of the spectrum, people might, might be spending three days in a, in a regular narrow complex tacky and have to sit on the floor, lie down, etc. So it's a huge spectrum of, of symptoms. Yeah, exactly. And so as we've already uh, spoken about, you've got a broad range of possible uh, differential diagnoses. And the important thing with this episode is that the listeners are going to have to tailor their approach to the patients in front of them. But we are going to try and cover all possible eventualities. And so I think we're going to start off just by talking about what are the most common causes of palpitations. And then we can reference those as we go through the podcast with the various uh, pertinent positives and negatives for each. So Alex, if we can just talk through a sort of a systematic approach to how you'd approach a patient with palpitations in terms of the possible causes. Absolutely. I mean, I, th I think, you know, again, this is very pertinent to paces, but but also the real life approach is the first thing is the sort of patient demographics. You do, when you're looking at the patient at the end of the bed or in the clinic, who are they? Young, old, do they have known disease? And that's important because if you're talking to an older patient who may have comorbidities, may have ischemic heart disease and scar, and they're telling you that they're getting palpitations, you're you're thinking differently to if you know twenty year old woman with normal heart, uh, otherwise well is it, talking about palpitations. So, so first thing is the sort of end of bedogram demographics, the things that you can that you can see, and then again a, a history, looking at the classic features of a history. So what's the onset? And within that, when did it start? If you're talking to somebody, say I've had palpitations, you know, since my teens, since my twenties, and I'm now fifty, that's more likely to be something benign. Often, that's what you hear with things like AVNRTs or AVRTs. It's something which they put up with for a long time. You know, if they're saying, "Oh, in the last two weeks, I've been getting severe palpitations and I've been presyncopal and things," you're probably more worried that there's a aggressive or evolving process. And with the onset, um, I'll ask them to describe a typical episode. So. Does it switch on and off like a light switch? That would be more suggestive of something re-entrant because re-entrant rhythms tend to, you know, you have an ectopic in the wrong place, which creates a substrate for re-entry. Re-entry caused by unidirectional block and that will get a rhythm firing off, going round and round and round a, a circuit. And that can be quite constant and go on for quite a long time, as opposed to something which is kind of autonomically mediated like a sinus tacky or a focal atrial tachy, we tend to see those warm up and cool down. So I'll say, is it more like a dimmer switch? Just to stick with my lighting uh, uh, analogy as a, you know, as the electrician um, of the heart, obviously. Um, so onset, 
and then again precipitating or alleviating features really important if you're thinking about av mediated reentrant rhythms like avnrt or avrt um, often they'll be able to abort them with vagal maneuvers often people say i'll lie down or i'll blow into a syringe or um, have a cold drink and something that you tend to hear quite a bit with the onset of those sorts of rhythms is often it's when they're bending over i don't know the mechanism behind that but uh, but onset's obviously very important frequency that's really important i mean Again, that's more important, not necessarily for diagnosis, but that's quite important for guiding treatment because a lot of what we're doing with palpitations is first we're risk stratifying. Do you have something that might be dangerous? Do you have a ventricular rhythm? Do you have something which might suggest you've got a pathway, an accessory pathway? But then beyond that, a lot of what we're doing is actually symptom guided. So if you've got an AVNRT or an atrial tachy or even AF, a lot of the procedures we're doing are symptom guided. So if somebody's having symptoms once a month or less, then actually that really informs how far you're going to go with their with their treatment. And then I suppose, what do the palpitations feel like? Are they regular or irregular? Often patients with AF, they were not necessarily bothered by the regularity, but the with with the speed, sorry, of the palpitations, but often just the irregular nature and the feeling of flipping from sinus to AF. That's something you hear a lot. They say, oh, suddenly I feel I'm out of rhythm. I'm jumping around. And ironically, all those patients, if they develop into persistent, they often aren't bothered by the symptoms so much. But um, the irregularity, people hate that feeling of, you know, the classic ectopic or short coupled um, interval followed by a long compensatory pause and then a big co- uh, contraction. People fit, find that really unpleasant. They say, I was jumping around. And often that's what people report with AF. Um, and then finally, the sort of, I mentioned the red flag symptoms. So when you're taking the history, there's a there's a set of things that I ask everybody. Have you ever blacked out? Because that's implying that you've got something that's so fast, it's impairing your cardiac output, or you've got something structurally wrong with your heart. So syncope is a red flag. Any features of heart failure, that's a red flag as well. And then family history of any sort of electrical problem, because that's making you think, or, or heart failure problem, that's making you think about cardiomyopathies or inher- inherited cardiomyopathies, but then also sudden death. And, and I don't say sudden cardiac death, I just say sudden death or unexplained death at a young age, because we know that a lot of death, which has previously been called, you know, traumatic or sudden or even drownings, you know, they can unfortunately be a, a cardiac arrest. Yeah, so definitely the red flags are something to uh, nail into your uh, history taking for uh, palpitations because um, missing something like that, such as syncope or a family history of a collapse at a young age or a cardiac death at a young age, this is the type of stuff the examiners are going to be uh, looking at you to to probe in your history. And so, Alex, you've mentioned a few of the possible differential uh, diagnoses as well. I wonder if we can just talk through them sort of systematically in terms of how you approach them. And we, we talked about sort of the typical nature of how they might present. So one of the things you mentioned was uh, ectopic beats. And so they may be atrial or ventricular in nature, but they of, they're often described, as you mentioned, about with regard to skipped beats is how they're often described. And I guess the other thing which is person which i think you mentioned about is whether or not it's a tachycardia or a bradycardia but in my experience bradycardias often don't produce so much in the way of palpitations because the the patient is maybe less aware of a, of a bradycardia than they are of a tachycardia yeah i think that's right i think it's quite uncommon for people to present with palpitations with a bradycardia often they'll be a bit breathless pre-syncopal or obviously syncopal in 
often in the case of high-grade AV block. But I think it, I mean, we see a lot of palpitations in clinic. It's probably at least 50% of, of what we see, to be honest. And GPs manage a huge amount in primary care. And obviously, it's very common on the acute medical take. And, and arguably, it's something which can be can be risk stratified and, and potentially discharged or, you know, prevented from actually coming into hospital. Uh, and there are all sorts of good risk scores out there for syncope as well. There are good risk scores, San Francisco syncope score, etc. And the vast majority of palpitations, you work them up only with an echo and some sort of rhythm monitoring. And they're, both of those are normal. And what you're really hoping to get is symptom rhythm correlation. So I felt awful and my rhythm was this sinus rhythm with some ectopics or I had some you know there was some abnormality on the tape but I didn't feel it so the vast majority end up being usually atrial ectopics and having atrial or ventricular ectopy is in no way a sign of an unhealthy heart and actually it's quite healthy particularly if you're young and fit to have quite a degree of heart rate variability and also to be able to handle ectopy yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about our systematic history taking. We're going to be asking about the onset and importantly, the frequency of symptoms as well, which we'll come on to when we come on to the investigations. We're talking about duration and describing the typical uh, episode that they might report and then exacerbating uh, factors and triggers. And we'll come on to a bit more on that in the social history as well. And, and those all important red flags as well. So then moving into the extended history, um, we've already mentioned a couple of uh, those things, which you'll ask about in the, particularly the family history, asking about sudden cardiac death in a, in a young age, but also as you mentioned about a background of cardiac disease, particularly is, ischemic disease or known heart failure or any other reasons which might leave them vulnerable to, uh, to a da- more dangerous arrhythmia or ventricular arrhythmia. So Alex, I wonder if I can ask you about the ex- other extended parts of the history, which is going to include our our drug history and our social history for our patients. So what are the important things that our listeners need to be asking about and probing about in their history for uh, the patient uh, in front of them? Absolutely. So your drug, drugs are really important. I mean, there's plenty of arrhythmic conditions which can be related to drugs. Um, you know, do they have something which could be pronged in their QT? Um, so commonly, you know, uh, psychiatric medications, macrolide antibiotics. Um, we think that a lot of patients with congenital long QT, uh, sorry, we think that a lot of patients with drug-induced QT actually have congenital long QT, but they're able to compensate. They have kind of redundancy in their uh, cardiac channels. We call it kind of repolarization reserve. But when they take a drug which blocks it, you know, they see their GP, they're given erythromycin. Okay, that knocks out some of them. And then for whatever reason, you know, they're admitted to hospital and started on something else, which is QT prolonging drugs. Suddenly their QT shoots out. Um, So drugs are really important. Again, recreational drugs are really important. Things that are vagolytics, amphetamines, cocaine, really important. I mean, quite commonly people are on huge amounts of energy drinks, you know, something that you hear quite a bit, you know, downing cans and cans of, you know, monster energy or, or whatever, um, and you're know, getting some palpitations. Uh, so caffeine, in contrary to popular belief, caffeine doesn't necessarily make palpitations that much worse. And in an AF, it doesn't necessarily affect your rate control too much, um, but huge doses will. And not only caffeine, but also big meals late at night. We know that in younger people, that can be a real vagal stimulant and big meals late at night, particularly with alcohol, can be a trigger, particularly for sort of vagal induced AF in young people. So there's other parts of the social history. Occupation, I mean, the, the big one is driving, driving history. Obviously, there are various causes of palpitations and diseases which can affect driving and, 
and syncope overlays with that. And that's often the bad news that you're having to deliver to people in clinic. Sorry, you've had a, a loss of consciousness with no clear program. Sorry, that's six months. Or you've had an arrhythmia, which is um, in- caused incapacity. That's a six-month driving ban. Yeah. One of the most brutal parts of running any sort of uh, cardiology clinic is having a having a syncopal patient where, you know, yeah, it's it's an un- unprovoked syncope or a syncope without a clear cause. Yep. You're looking immediately at a six-month uh, six, six driving restriction. Yeah, exactly. And even worse, if they're a group two driver, an HGV driver, um, that can be, you know, really, really unfortunate. Um, which, which by and large, these paces, uh, uh, patients often are. Yes, yeah, exactly. And then other things, I mean, from a paces point of view, going to be asking about other less common but important causes of palpitations, which are related to systemic disease. So, you know, a, a, an important one not to miss, particularly with AF, but any palpitations is... is uh, if they're thyroid or hyper or hypothyroid actually so things like weight loss um you know temperature regulations so heat intolerance energy levels tremor obviously important from a paces point of view the other one that we think of occasionally is pheochromocytoma are they extremely hypertensive do they have a palpable mass and the classic there is sort of sweating and flushing and then af also associated with uh, obstructive sleep apnea makes it worse so an important part of af treatment is actually optimizing um, upstream risk factors such as so so you ask them you know do you wake up tired does your partner report that you snore and then uh, weight as well really important with af high bmi you know so interesting work coming out of um, adelaide in the last 10 years showing that decent 10 percent weight loss is as good as an af ablation in curing af so um actually a really positive message there that if you can lose a bit of weight you probably you might be able to get rid of your AF. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely of critical importance to be asking in a broader paces sense. We're not just uh, blinkered cardiologists, but looking at the whole patient, thinking about the weird and wonderful things which could also uh, be contributing to our patients' palpitations as well. And so, Alex, you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier about examination and how it, it may not add too much in our paces examination but the listeners will be expected to perform some sort of examination and so even if it's not maybe directly related to clinical practice what sort of things would you advise for our listeners to perform during their examination of the patient with palpitations just to go through the motions to the examiner yeah absolutely i think i i still think it's really important because there are important things there that you don't want to miss so i think it's really important feel the hands feel the pulse does it feel regular are they in af and what's the character of the pulse? Again, people with severe valvular heart disease are much more prone to heart rhythm problems, so feeling for collapsing or slow rising pulse. Looking at somebody's JVP can be really useful. Again, often patients with decompensated heart failure, they're much more prone to a ventricular arrhythmia. It's the most common cause of death in heart failure patients. So examination of the JVP. Examining the face, really important as well. Simple things like, do they have a marfanoid appearance? associated with other cardiovascular comorbidities and valvular issues as well as an association with HCM and uh, you know other things look at their tongue do they have a big tongue it could be relevant if you're thinking about cardiomyopathies and then of course auscultation of the chest really important and again that ha- that's helping you risk stratify a patient with palpitations do they have a murmur again you know we talk about HCM don't we if it if it's has an obstructive component then they often have that dynamic systolic murmur and you can ask the patient to Valsalva breath hold to try and emphasize that 
And then more broadly, is there any sort of stigmata of anticoagulation in a PACER setting? You know, are there patients with AF or atrial flutter who's anticoagulated? Do they have something straightforward like the scar of a pacemaker or an ICD? Again, remember these days we've been planting a lot of subcutaneous ICDs. Often the scar is is lateral and underneath the armpit, so it's sort of lateral to the nipple, right round on the left hand side. For for a modern SICD, a leadless ICD, do they have other scars? Do they have a stenotomy scar? You know, if you've had work done your left atrium before or you've had your mitral valve release you're much more likely to get things in your left atrium so focal left atrial tachys or left atrial flutters if you're a patient with congenital heart disease or con- corrected congenital heart disease you're much more likely to get all sorts of arrhythmias yeah absolutely and i guess the other thing just to think about as well from a broad based paces perspective is that if they're presenting with symptoms suggestive of those more general uh, medical conditions such as thyrotoxicosis or pheochromocytoma to be seen to accurately examine that system whether or not you're performing a focused thyroid examination examining the eyes or palpating the abdomen for uh, a mass Um, important just to remember you're not maybe expecting to feel a mass but you're signposting to the examiner that you know what to do in patients presenting with symptoms suggestive of that condition absolutely i mean it shows you're thinking about it doesn't it and that you're you're trying to exclude some of those red flags. Absolutely. And so next, after you've performed your systematic history and your examination, you'll be expected to talk to the uh, patient and to the examiner about uh, the possible differential diagnosis. And so at this point, we'll we'll end up running through each of our differential diagnoses in turn. And we may, we may well discuss a bit more about their typical presentation. And then we'll cover the broad brushstrokes of the investigations and management. Just to sort of slightly rewind, a couple of things that I, I, I should have said again, signs of heart failure are really important. Uh, signs of heart failure are really important because the, the signs and symptoms can be fairly nebulous. If someone's been building up fluid for quite a while, so always listen to the lung bases, sit them forward, listen to the lung bases, look for peripheral edema and, and those other things that you said, going through the motions, looking for a goiter, doing a thyroid-focused examination, really important. And that could also include looking for eye signs as, as well if you really want to, to impress. Yeah, absolutely. So then moving on to our uh, differential diagnosis for our patient, we may end up covering the same ground that we've uh, covered earlier in the, in the chat, but we will uh, cover each of those in turn. So Alex, what would you expect someone presenting with ectopic beats how would you expect them to present? And then how would you uh, approach the uh, investigations and management of them? Yeah, absolutely. So just simple ectopic beats. They could be atrial or ventricular. Often people report a, a missed or an extra beat or skipping a beat. It's not sustained, doesn't last more than a few seconds or a few minutes, may not be associated with anything in particular. Um, again, the association with the exercise is an important thing that I haven't mentioned yet, but if palpitations or syncope, pre-syncope for that matter, coming on consistently with exercise or with recovery from exercise, that's another red flag. You're suggesting there might be something more serious there, more serious arrhythmic condition. Commonly, we think of CPVT as being the sort of class, classic, but, but several of the sudden death syndromes can be associated with exertion for a number of reasons. Um, yeah, and just for the non-cardiologist, that's a catecholaminergic polymorphic VT. Exactly. <laughs> can, you tell, can you tell me what the pathognomonic ECG findings of that are? No. <laughs> it's bi- bi-directional ventricular tachycardia on exercise. Uh-huh. Uh, so they have VT, which is sort of fluctuating in um, in polarity. So 
again, yeah, so simple, simple ectopics tend to come and go, not necessarily associated with anything. Often people describe that they're a bit anxious or it can be worse, be worse when they're more stressed. And it's very rare for them to be associated with loss of consciousness. But what people do notice is that when they notice them, often they can get worse. So they can say, I feel a few extra misbeats and then I and then I notice it and then my heart starts pounding. And I think I always tell them that's a kind of vicious circle. They notice it, they have a fight or flight response, they have an adrenaline release. Nothing they're choosing to consciously do, but that that adrenaline release is exactly what it's supposed to do. It makes the heart pump faster, makes it pump harder, and, and often a bit of reassurance from from someone like you or I can actually break that cycle. So they just think, actually, no, it's fine. My heart's healthy, and you know I can ignore it. Hopefully, they'll have a normal ECG, normal examination, no family history of any serious illness or sudden death. Usually, unless it was really really clear, normally I would we'd have an echo to ensure they have a structurally normal heart. And that's important for two reasons. One is to make sure that the palpitations aren't a sign of uh, cardiomyopathy. And the second is that if you have a high burden of ectopics, particularly ventricular ectopics, can actually cause a cardiomyopathy. So we normally say less than 10% burden of ventricular ectopics is fine. More than 20% slightly can cause LV impairment and 10 to 20 is a bit of a grey zone but above 20 be looking at trying to suppress that either with beta blockers in the first instance or possibly ablation if we think it's a sort of unifocal area which we could uh, target and beta blockers tend to be tend to be the mainstay of treatment if they're really troublesome at most of the time reassurance seems to do the trick yeah fantastic so then moving on from ectopic beats, we're going to move on to a big umbrella term of tachycardias. And we're going to, if we focus first on the sort of supraventricular tachycardia, so if we focus on the AVN and AVRT re-entry tachycardias, you, you talked a bit about the, the typical nature of how these present uh, earlier, Alex, but if you could just re-emphasize that for us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, again, EP... It, the, it sounds all very complicated but actually it's just the same thing happening in different places you know so tachycardia basically most of it is re-entry uh, macro re-entries you know when you can kind of sit you know it's somewhere an appreciable circuit in micro entries when it's happening around a few cells and it, you know we talk about af so the macro re-entrant tachycardia is again just pick your spot in the heart and if you can if you can get an electrical circuit to race around somewhere then you can get a tachycardia so if it's racing around the av node round and round we call that an AV nodal reentrant tachycardia. And about a third of us are born with a bit of extra wiring in the AV node. Instead of one pathway, the fast pathway, or the second wire, the slow pathway. So typical AVLT will go down the slow and up the fast pathway, round and round and round. It's a tiny little area, so it's often very, very quick. The tachycardia in these will be extremely rapid, you know, upwards of 200 beats per minute. It's narrow complex usually because it's within the node, so you've got normal Hispokinji conduction. You can get aberrancy, and often the right bundle will be the first one to go at that sort of rate because it's so quick. Um, you'll hit the refractory period of the right right bundle, and it just can't keep up. And that can obviously give you a broad complex tachycardia as a differential diagnosis. If you've got an accessory pathway, you're born with an accessory pathway. You can have two types of palpitations. You can have one which the more common one where it will go down the node and up the accessory pathway. So that's an atrioventricular reentrant tachycardia, so AVRT. And the most common one going down the node, that's that's the most common one. That's what we call orthodromic because it's going forward through the node, so it's narrow. If it's going the other way around, which is less common, down the pathway and up the node, going round and round, that would be broad complex, and we tend to call that antidromic. That's less common because people's people often have pathways that just conduct backwards but not forwards. And of course, that's important because if your pathway conducts forwards, 
it's more likely to be dangerous because what we worry about in patients with pathways is the ability so wolf parkinson white syndrome is obviously an accessory pathway plus symptoms we worry that if they were to have an uncontrolled atrial tachycardia such as af flutter or any uncontrolled atrial tachycardia they would have the those fast impulses conducted straight into the ventricle without any filtering and the node is very good at the av node is very good at what it does specialized conducting tissue which has the ability to decrement so the faster and the harder you push it the more it pushes back and says hang on a minute that's a bit quick puts the brakes on and we use that in the ep lab to do all sorts of testing but pathways aren't av nodal tissue usually they're usually an embryological remnant of a bit of atrial tissue and they don't have that decremental property Um, so one of the common things we do in the ep lab is we'll test how rapidly someone's accessory pathway will conduct and that's why if you're treating a patient with a narrow complex tachycardia after you terminate the tachycardia it's really important to get a 12 lead ecg of their not normal non-tachycardia heart rhythm to make sure they're not pre-excited there's no evidence of a pathway there so that's avnrt and avrt obviously those circuits involve the av node so if you block the av node for example with adenosine they can't carry on so they're adenosine sensitive that's often something you'll hear in the history i've been to AE, they gave me adenosine now those tracings invariably aren't aren't available to you oh yeah no they recorded it at x hospital and you know, they said they'd send it but they haven't but if it's adenosine sensitive that's really a you know, good pointer that it's probably an avnrt or an avrt other places that you can have reentrant rhythms around your tricuspid valve and annulus so typical atrial flutter it's common born with it more common as you get older uh, often there's that you know classic onset and offset but again it can be it can persist a long time people can be in it persistently for weeks if not months um, other places you can have range tachycardias in your ventricle vt now again that usually people notice that more than other more than atrial tachycardias because if you've got a reentrant rhythm in your ventricles it's likely to impair your cardiac output so you're likely to feel some degree of presyncope or syncope particularly in healthy hearts you can get quite rapid vts um, and sort of focusing just to wrap up the na- other causes of narrow complex tachycardias obviously af sort of micro reentrant or you know ectop ectopy which originates in the pulmonary veins in the left atrium more likely to have it if you have those upstream risk factors hypertension high bmi those sort of metabolic things obstructive sleep apnea is known to be associated um, if it's very quick it can be difficult to differentiate on an ecg because it's difficult to spot the irregularity the important thing with af and flutter is is the anticoagulation of course that's what kills patients with af and flutter other than that the jury's still out on rhythm control versus rate control you know it's, <laughs> i probably can't say that as an ep trainee but <laughs> having said that you can make people feel a lot better and atrial flutter is very relatively straightforward to treat typical atrial flutter by typical we mean that it involves the cavo tricuspid isthmus on the right hand side around the tricuspid valve and typical would have, tend to be counterclockwise it's just easy you put a catheter up and burn a line down across their cti line you know when it goes well atypical might be on the left might be somewhere else on the right can be much more difficult to treat and again af paroxysmal af might be 80 90 percent successful ablation wise but probably better the quicker you get it and it can be good for quality of life persistent af is a completely different beast and can be quite difficult to treat and then other things that we see focal atrial tachycardias very common in patients with structural heart disease or previous work congenital heart disease or previous ablations and they can be quite difficult to treat can often be very rapid they can kind of have that dimmer switch effect so they warm up and cool down 
uh, often associated with stress, and they can be really incessant as well. They can go on for, go on for a long time. I think I've covered most of them there. Yeah, I think you have. I think you've covered pretty much everything that any Pacers <laughs> candidate would would want to encounter. I think probably the key thing for for the listeners is, at least in my experience, I haven't heard many stories of Pacers cases coming with an ECG. My feeling is you probably wouldn't be expected to interpret an ECG, but what is more likely is you speak to a patient, you take your history, and then the examiner gives you a bit of information such as the ECG shows, or or an ECG during an episode of symptoms shows uh, atrial fibrillation. And previous ECG done uh, a week prior showed normal sinus rhythm. How would you proceed or something of that nature? But Alex, we've talked through the differential diagnosis in in a lot of detail. So we're going to go back to our broad brushstrokes approach. And we're going to talk about the general uh, principles of investigating management. And I want to draw the listener's attention to one particular phrase, which I think is so uh, critically important that it needs some sort of klaxon uh, to it, which I may well put it in post-production. But that is um, rhythm symptom correlation so Alex can you just uh if you can talk to us about rhythm symptom correlation and then maybe give us an insight into the various forms of ambulatory cardiac monitoring devices which are available to us to to try and obtain rhythm symptom correlation yeah absolutely I mean so it is so important because again the symptoms of palpitation the symptom of palpitations is can be quite nebulous so it's it's really important to try and record that patient's ECG while they're experiencing the symptom they're talking about because if they experience the symptoms while they're experiencing a normal heart rhythm, you can be reassured that actually it may be anxiety related. It may be that they've got you know there's a, there's an overlay of of anxiety and at times they're experiencing palpitations, but at times it's it's more of a perception of palpitations. Again, you can correlate what they're saying to a run of ectopy, you know, single ectopics. Um, or a very short run of ectopics, that's very reassuring. But but that can be a number of things. That can be somebody seeing you in clinic saying, when I'm in AF, I feel really unwell, like I do now. Look at their 12 lead there and then. We know that single ECGs are very bad at spotting paroxysm, they're sort of, you know, 3 to 7% detecting AF. And even Holter, 24-hour tapes are quite poor, uh, quite poor at detecting things like AF. I mean, having said that, when people talk about daily symptoms, so palpitations uh, caused by ectopy for example 24-hour tapes can be really helpful if they're getting them every day and I'll ask them you know just take a typical day do what you normally do to provoke your symptoms if you normally get them you know going for a run go for a run often start with a 24-hour halter monitor you know these days a lot of people have smart watches apple watches and that sort of thing and you know there are various brands of ambulatory devices that um, people either oft, often have, or if we've done a bit of investigation and we're reassured, but we say, oh, you know, maybe you could pick one of these, you know, I think they used to be called a live core cardio devices, pick one of them up. And if you get a typical episode, record it and send it into our arrhythmia nurses, they filter through, you know, and often when we're, you know, when I'm looking through a case, I'll be looking through 20, 30, 40 of these, you know, uh, emails in with with strips. And they can be really helpful because they often show you what the patient's experiencing and that, that's the total burden of the patient's sort of symptoms. And sometimes there'll be one or two 
true paraxes and whatever it is in there, lots and lots of sinus ectop, uh, lots and lots of um, ectopy in there. So that helps you firstly get a diagnosis, but also set the expectations to the patient that, okay, maybe you are having AF, but the vast majority of your symptoms are actually actually a normal heart rhythm. And sinus tachycardia is incredibly uncommon. And, and again, there's a bit of a debate as to what to what extent that's pathological. People talk about inappropriate sinus tachycardia, POTS, again, that's quite a contentious area, but it's not uncommon that we do an EP study and it's actually a sinus tachycardia. When we give the patient isoprenaline, you know, that synthetic adrenaline, that totally recreates their symptoms, but they are in a sinus tachycardia. They might be young. They might be having incredibly rapid sinus tachycardia. Again, for patients that we're a bit more concerned about, so patients who have had a syncope, for example, Patients who are at risk of sudden cardiac death, so say a first-degree relative or a, of, a, of a patient who's had a cardiac arrest or, a, or something else that puts them at risk but doesn't have a clear ICD indication. So say, for example, somebody's got a uh, spontaneous type 1 Brigado pattern on their ECG or a long QT, but they're asymptomatic. You'd consider more continuous monitoring. So implantable loop recorders is something that we use very commonly, particularly in syncope. They've got a really good evidence base. And this is something that's implanted just under the skin takes about 10 minutes to do with a bit of local anaesthetic. They last for up to three years. Again, on an examination of a patient, you'd see a scar somewhere on their left precordium and it normally angled down towards the cardiac apex. And they give you a, they give you a single lead ECG. Uh, they can be very helpful. They can either be activated by the patient or they're event triggered by various algorithms and they last for up to three years before the battery runs out. And then the final sort of symptom rhythm correlation that we can often do is, is via device. So patients that already have devices and different devices are better or worse at re- recording events. And often ICDs will be slightly more sophisticated, but they can be very useful at, at recording arrhythmia. What to do with it can be a difficult question. And device-selected AF is a contentious issue, um, but they do give you a, another source of information. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess the other, the thing for our listeners to take away with this will be in your history, as we've discussed, you'll be talking about the frequency of symptoms that the patient's reporting. And this is really important because it's going to guide how long you might consider um, your your period of ambulatory monitoring. If the patient's reporting daily symptoms, you've got a reasonably good chance of uh, picking up rhythm symptom correlation with a 24-hour tape. If it's happening weekly, obviously a 24-hour tape is going to be far less helpful and you might consider a 72-hour or a seven-day tape. So this is all going to be important for your discussion with the examiner and justifying your uh, strategy of investigation for these patients. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes you'll chat to somebody and say, oh, I get palpitations all the time. You look down at their 12 and they've got two or three ectopics on that. And you think, okay, this is going to be somebody with a lot of ectopics. You know, I guess that could be a potential paces thing. You look and there's a few ectopics on there. Yeah, fantastic. And Alex, we've, we've talked a lot about ECG so far, but we're going to go back to our basic lab tests for these patients as well. Whilst they're not a, a, a huge mainstay of, of investigation and management, they're still important, important, important we don't uh, neglect those as paces is uh, a requirement of paces is to be completest in our assessment. So how much value can, uh, can we get from lab tests in this sort of situation? And what should the listeners be reporting that they should be asking for in terms of lab tests for, to, to their examiner? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it, it is important. Um, and I mean, I think even the most sort of routine uh, blood workup is, is important. You know, this sort of standard full blood count's important. If you somebody has a significant anemia, they could obviously become tachycardic with that, um, just a sinus tachycardia. 
um, or if there's evidence of infection, again, that's just a cause of physiological tachycardia. Electrolyte disturbance is really important in the context of arrhythmia. The sort of electrolytes that we tend to think most about, potassium, low or high is proarrhythmic, magnesium can be, and particularly we you know, we, we know that actually slightly higher magnesium, slightly higher potassium can be used to sort of stabilize the myocardium a bit. And of course, you know, magnesium is one of the one of, one of the treatments of, of torsade of polymorphic VT. And then important again if people are on antiarrhythmics, you know, digoxin can be quite toxic in the context of a low potassium. And then other blood tests, uh, thyroid function, obviously really important. Again, thinking about endocrine things, just looking at the endocrine type blood tests, that says the sodium norm is there evidence of some sort of pituitary issue or you know, something else which is going to push you towards further investigation there. And then you've got the cardiac blood test. So if they've got troponin, is that high? So suggesting that there might be an ACS or a myocarditis, which can be associated with all sorts of arrhythmia, ventricular arrhythmia. Uh, BNP these days, we're thinking about a lot, you know, as a, as a screening test for heart failure. And again, patients with heart failure are much more at risk of ventricular arrhythmia. Absolutely fantastic. And if we move on to the imaging, we've already mentioned that an echocardiogram is the sort of bread and butter uh, that we would ask for in the the workup of these patients. And as you've already said, Alex, it's often just helpful to help rule out any structural heart disease, but also rule in if if you have found something abnormal, a murmur on examination or, or something similar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, an echo is a really good, easy tool um, to, to, as you say, to to exclude um, structural heart disease. I mean, sometimes in EP, we kind of, even with the normal echo, we're a bit suspicious. You know, we know that there are these cardiomyopathy syndromes, particularly inherited cardiomyopathies that might develop as the phenotype develops as you get older. So, you know, if we think somebody's got, you know, right-sided ECG, a T-wave inversion in the right pericordial leads and features of VT or syncope, we think, do they have arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy? Even a normal echo, we might think, let's get a cardiac MRI to look at their right ventricle in more detail. So, so while an echo is reassuring, it's not a, not a cast iron guarantee that they've got a structurally normal heart, but it does provide reassurance. Again, there are certain antiarrhythmic medications like flecainide you wouldn't want to use in a patient with structurally structural heart disease or coronary disease, uh, such as flecainide. And an echo is useful in other ways too. If somebody's got a big left atrium, you know they're they're less likely to benefit from rhythm control therapy in AF. Cardiac MRI can be really helpful um, as it shows you if somebody has a normal heart structure, looks at their function in good detail. And also, you know, we inject gadolinium and we can see whether they have scar and whether that might be a focus for, for arrhythmia such as VT. Yeah, brilliant. And I think that's probably all the candidates would be expected to uh, discuss in terms of imaging. But the critical point of the station will be whether the examiner gives you a diagnosis or whether or not you're just left with the open-ended patient with palpitations. So Alex, if we can move on to the, uh, we'll talk about a bit about the management. I think we've talked a bit about that with regard to each of the uh, respective differential diagnoses, but I wonder if maybe we can talk a little bit about, in fact, let's, let's move on to answering the examiner question. So if the examiner poses a question to one of our uh, listeners and says something something similar to, what would you be looking for on a 12-lead ECG of this patient? Let's presume that they haven't been given a, a working diagnosis or the results of a, an ECG that's been performed. What should the listeners report that they would be looking for on a 12-lead ECG? That's a really good question. I mean, I think one question to ask as a candidate is, I may ask, did the, did the patient have uh, typical symptoms at the time of recording of the ECG? That, that shows that you are thinking about... You know, if the ECG shows AF, the patient was asymptomatic, well, that's not the problem. 
Um, and I think the ECG, you're getting two things from the ECG. One is you're getting information about that patient's heart. Is it you know, structurally and electrically normal at baseline? And the second thing you can see is, is there any obvious arrhythmia actually detectable on the ECG? Um, it seems unlikely that they're going to have symptoms at the time of the ECG recording. So it may be normal even in the presence of a you know, paroxysmal arrhythmia. The kind of key things to look for, major abnormality, so evidence of ischemic or structural heart disease. So, you know, are all their baseline intervals normal? If we think about structural heart disease, um, you know, are their ST segments normal? Is there evidence of axis deviation, both in the um, the limb leads, but also in the chest leads? Look at where the transition is. It should be somewhere in the middle, you know, V2 to V4. If it isn't, that's abnormal. Do they have evidence of LVH? That can suggest HCM. And HCM is the most common cause of sudden cardiac death globally. You often get T-wave, widespread T-wave inversion or ST elevation. And then other, other evidence of structural heart disease, ST or T-wave changes. Probably the sort of top four things that I would look for on an ECG are, are just literally just the, the top four causes of sudden arrhythmic death. HCM, as we've said, ST elevation or T-wave inversion and widespread. Number two, Brigada syndrome. So type one Brigada syndrome pattern. And you could, you know, if the examiner asked you about other types of Brigada patterns, you could say there's type two or type three, which can become a type one at different times. For example, during a fever, that's an important important thing to, to note, um, or during electrolyte abnormalities. And often you can, a patient who has a normal ECG might have a drug-induced pro provoked type one Brigada pattern if they're given a provocation drugs such as ashmolid or flecainide. That's how we test for that in these patients. So that's number two. Number three, long QT syndrome. Is the QTC normal? It might be reported for you. If not, a good rule of thumb is, does the QT interval look less than the R to R interval? That's like almost like the cardiothoracic ratio of the ECG. If it's less than half, it's probably normal, corrected. If it's more than half, you need to sit down and work it out. And the correct place to work out the QT interval is is if you take the maximum slope of the downward deflection of the T wave where it intersects with the isoelectric point. So long QT. And then number four is ARVC, or we now call it arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. It tends, it tends to affect the right ventral, but can affect the left. That's a very subtle, very subtle ECG finding. We call an epsilon wave, which is like a little bit of fractionation, like a little bit of kind of zigzaggy stuff at the end of the QRS, often it leads V1 and V2. And that's just telling you there's a little bit of scar where conduction's really slow in the right ventricle. You might also have right axis deviation, a bit of T-wave inversion in the you know, V1, V2, V3, V3, suggesting something's wrong with the right heart. So those are the those are the sort of the, the big ones, the big ones not to miss. And then we mentioned again uh, um, with CPVT. I'm so glad I managed to find something that, that I knew that you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> CPVT again that would that would be elicited on a treadmill test yeah absolutely and you can be sure that bit's getting cut Alex so yeah don't worry <laughs> about it so Alex very finally this is something that's way advanced for our uh, listeners but we will just talk through uh, the the broad brushstrokes of management of our differential diagnosis I think ectopics you already talked through where we can suppress it using beta blockers or possibly an ablation. So we'll move on to uh, the tachycardia. So if you could talk us through the AVNRTs and the uh, AVRTs for us. Yep, great. Uh, again, with, the, with the ventriculate topics, sort of more than 20%, particularly in LV function, think about referring because they can benefit from ablation. And when we're talking about the SVTs, uh, if they're not controlled with tablets, 
um, then refer for an ablation because often these can be over 95% curative. That could be quite a straightforward procedure has a massive impact on quality of life. If there's any suggestion um, of an accessory pathway, again, um, referring for an EP study and ablation can help us risk stratify. Again, if they've got an accessory pathway, potentially, uh, you know, fixable with a relatively simple procedure and it can be, um, you know, prevent them from a life-threatening arrhythmia. AF and flutter really focus on the anticoagulation. That's where the morbidity is with stroke and then and then treat symptoms after that. Flutter, quite easy to treat with ablation again. You can see the theme here. <laughs> um, AF, on the other hand, very difficult to treat with ablation. Paroxysmal, better. But if somebody's asymptomatic, then, then there might be a case to manage them just with... Uh, you know, rate control, anticoagulation, um, and then VT again. Um, speak to your speak to your friendly cardiologist and, and get advice for that. And again, palpitations. Just remember, they're not boring. They're actually really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yep, your VT patient is. Uh, you're going to want them to at least be in a, be an inpatient if there's any signs of compromise or syncope or what have you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite quite uncommon that we'd ever manage a VT patient in anything other than as an inpatient setting. Um, again, you can get normal heart VTs, of, you know, right ventricular outflow tract VTs, which is sort of relatively benign. But even in those patients, we still get a cardiac MRI to make sure they don't have ARVC. So okay, your VT patients, again, you want to be managing in a, in a sort of cardiology setting. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Well, Listeners, I think that's just about all the time we've got for this week's show. That only leaves us to uh, pay a huge debt of thanks to senior cardiology trainee with a subspecialty in uh, electrophysiology, Dr. Alex Carpenter. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. You're welcome, Sam. Thanks very much. And listeners, that's the end of another show. Don't forget to like, follow and subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're always keen to hear from you, so please do get in touch. You can do that on our Twitter. It's at Prepaces Podcast or via the website. But if you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash Prepaces Podcast. But for now, we're just about out of time. I've been Dr. Sam Williams. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Prepaces Podcast. <laughs>